Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, or navigate on your device. We're in chapter 1, verse 24, and we're going to look into chapter 2, verse 5, Lord willing. The topic we find, the Apostle Paul rejoiced that he was privileged to continue the sufferings of Jesus for his church. The title of our message, Desperately Seeking Suffering. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning we want to obviously uh, hear from you as these words are read. We have a hope that that's going to happen because the Holy Spirit is both in this place and in those of us who are Christians. I pray that my comments would not get in the way, but they would in some sense uh, help us to understand maybe the flow of what was happening in this church so many centuries ago. And that we would, of course, see ourselves mentioned in here, even though this is an ancient document, it's a living document, powerful and alive, able to accomplish its purpose. And Lord, we're not all sure of its purpose this morning in each of our lives, but you are. It's your desire to change us to be more like Jesus, more like your son. And so I pray that we would lay aside all those things that would hinder that, any weight of sin that hinders us, and that we would leave this place looking, sounding, being a little more like Jesus. We thank you in his name we pray. And all who agreed said, amen. At the end of every wedding I officiate, I get to say, it's my privilege to present to you for the first time, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. With most couples, I've had little to do with getting them to the altar. My part in presenting them is really very limited. Family and friends in each of their lives have gotten them to that point. That started to change as I got older. More couples started getting married with whom I'd had a lot of personal contact with in my 33 years here in Hanford. Kids I'd held as babies, dedicating them to the Lord, they were getting married. You want to feel old? <laughs> Try that. They grew up in this church. They sat under the teaching. They served under the leadership. When I presented them, there was a great deal more personal involvement and investment. When Gino married Kelly, that was huge from the standpoint of presentation. As his parents, Pam and I had a lot to do with getting him to that point in his life. When I, for the first time, presented Mr. and Mrs. Gene Pensiero, it was a most heartfelt presentation indeed. Presenting or being presented is the context of the verses before us today. Read uh, verse 28 with me. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Paul believed that in heaven he would have a hand in presenting the believers he had evangelized or edified. He thought of himself as having a personal involvement in getting believers to their face-to-face -face meeting with the Lord. We should think more about both being presented to the Lord and presenting others to the Lord in that glorious future day in heaven. If you are in Christ, a lot of people were involved in bringing you to Jesus, and a lot more are involved in helping you grow. As you grow in the Lord, you become a person who will present others with some level of personal involvement. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you are going to be presented by those who serve you. And number two, you are going to be presenting those you serve. Let's start with being presented in verses 24 through 28. You expecting a baby? Have you recently given birth? We say congratulations. But we also encourage you to start saving a lot of money. 
The estimated cost of raising a child from birth through age 17 is now at $234,000. That's a little bit more than your 401k probably. And so think about that. Our verses describe what it costs to present a believer to God. It's not measured by dollars, of course, but what we would call discipleship. And so let's put in at verse 24, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. As I've told you, Paul is under house arrest in Rome on account of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Still, he could say, right now I rejoice in the midst of my sufferings because they were for you. They were for Christians. His preaching had the effect of bringing them the knowledge of eternal life, and that greatly outweighed any amount of personal suffering he must endure for it. And so he was suffering for the sake of the gospel, but only because the gospel was successful in his preaching and many were getting saved. He thought house arrest or later imprisonment a small price to pay for the privilege of sharing Christ. Now, nothing was lacking as far as Jesus' work on the cross. And so we can't read this phrase as if uh, Jesus didn't quite finish the work. He said, it is finished with a strong, loud voice. And then he dismissed his own spirit on the cross. He completed and accomplished all that he was sent to do. And if his declaration on the cross wasn't enough, his exit from the tomb in resurrection put an exclamation point on it. So there's nothing lacking in the work of Jesus Christ, nothing more that anyone needs to do. But after his resurrection, his followers were charged with bringing the gospel to the world. They are called his body on the earth. So the Lord is in heaven, but we remain on earth, and as his body, it's as if he never left. There's been a fascinating thought, something we all know but we don't think about all the time. As the body of Christ, we are on the earth as if Jesus had never left the earth. And so what happens to us in terms of persecution or affliction or suffering are things that people would have done or would do to Jesus if they could. And this is what Paul means by completing or filling up or uh, fulfilling the, the afflictions of Christ. Not that we finish some work that Jesus started, but that we continue to be treated the way Jesus was treated. And Paul thought of that as something to rejoice in and be excited about. In fact, all of the apostles did. Anytime they suffered for the sake of the gospel, they understood they were being identified with Jesus Christ, and that made them excited. And so verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Now, this word minister, I've told you before, it's the Greek word diakonos from where we get the word deacon. Deacon can refer to an office in the church. Uh, some churches have formal offices of elder and deacon and men and sometimes even women fill those offices. But it can also simply describe a Christian in his or her service to others. And so there's a sense in which every Christian is a deacon. Uh, I've uh, kind of fudged on this a little bit before. I've, so, uh, every once in a while, somebody will say, hey, uh, I want to go visit so-and-so in the hospital, but visiting hours are over and they're only letting pastors in. I said, well, just tell them you're a minister from Calvary Chapel, but I'm not ordained. I didn't say tell them you were the pastor of Calvary Chapel. I said, tell them you're a minister from Calvary Chapel. Tell them you're a deacon. And that's all well and good because it's all true. So I don't know what the hospital thinks about that. I guess I'll find out as some of you report me. But uh, 
But that's true. You are a servant of the Lord. You are a deacon. You're a deaconess. You don't have to hold an office for that. Uh, you're a servant of the Lord serving others. And so every believer is a minister called upon to serve. Paul was a minister, a deacon, whose formal calling was the stewardship that God had given to him. A steward is the chief servant in a household, the one responsible for the overall management and administration of its affairs. Paul's stewardship was to fulfill the word of God. The phrasing reminds us that we must remain grounded solidly upon God's word. We must find the basis for our ministering in the Bible and nowhere else. Uh, it's not a, uh, we're going to see this means something a little bit different in context, but that's the background for it, is that we always want to base our conduct on the Word. We should always be able to give an explanation for what we're doing and why we're doing it. And uh, it should be biblically based. So, so let me give you an example. It doesn't mean that we can't have our own traditions and do things that are not explicitly taught in the Bibles, like baby dedications. There are no rules or regulations or, or teaching about dedicating babies to the Lord. And some people get really uh, kind of crazy about it and they say, hey, we don't do baby dedications because that's not a practice that we see in the New Testament. And you know what? They're right. It's not a practice we see in the New Testament. But I would say, if challenged, why do you do it? I'd say, what I do see practiced in the New Testament is that believers pray for one another. And so, can you tell me, is there something wrong with having a family come up and us praying for them, that they are good parents, that they walk with the Lord, that their child come to Christ? Is there anything wrong with that? Well, no, not really, but, but nothing. We are able to do those kinds. So we want to be grounded in the Word of God. Everything we do has to have an explanation, but it doesn't have to be something that is only done by the first century church. Uh, and, and so you have to have a little bit of freedom uh, that is ruled by God's Word. I think you understand what I'm talking about. Now, more than this in our text, the word stewardship is translated dispensation. I'll let commentator Robert Gromacki explain what a dispensation is. It's one of those big theological words that we throw around. He says this, God has administered his redemptive program in different ways within the different ages of biblical history. He dealt with Adam differently when sin occurred than before his fall. After the Mosaic law was given, the people of Israel had more responsibilities before God than prior to that event. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ likewise have changed the means of divine government in this age. These various periods can be called dispensations. Here's the way I like to explain it to people. When you came to church this morning, did you bring a lamb with you? And if the answer is no, why didn't you? Because we're not under that government anymore, that economy, that dispensation. That all ended when Jesus came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So now that Lamb has been sacrificed once for all, so we come and we relate to God differently than folks did during the time of the Mosaic Law. Salvation is always the same. Don't ever get confused about this. Salvation was never by works. It's always been by grace through faith. It's by believing God. But the way God administers that and the way he deals with mankind has changed dramatically from the garden through the time in which we live right now. 
And so that are, uh, you know, different scholars identify different numbers of dispensations and they get very technical. All you need to know is that we are dispensational in the sense that we recognize God is doing something different uh, in the age in which we live. What is the current dispensation? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's in verse 26. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. In the New Testament, a mystery is something previously concealed and unknown, which is now clearly revealed. Mostly when you read a mystery novel, the reveal is at the end, or some television show or movie, there's the big reveal at the end, and you go, oh, I didn't see that coming. But in the Bible, a mystery is told to you immediately. And so Paul is saying, I'm telling you something that no one knew before and that couldn't be known because it's being revealed right now. He says it was hidden from ages and from generations. Ages refers to the periods of history prior to the first century. Generations refers to all the people who lived in those periods of time. Something amazing which was hidden has now been revealed to his saints, and it is this in verse 27. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Gentiles is a word that identifies anyone who is not a Hebrew. I was a Christian for many years before somebody explained that to me. Uh, you can't always pause and explain everything there is to know in the Bible at one time. But, you know, I used to think Gentiles were a lost race or something, like Visigoths or, you know, something like that. And then finally somebody said, Gentiles are all the non-Jewish peoples. And I thought, oh, well, that makes sense. So it encompasses all tribes and nations and kindreds and tongues, all people that are not Hebrew, that are not Jewish. Now, the mystery here isn't simply that non-Jews could be saved. This was predicted in the Old Testament. In fact, it was the duty of Israel to bring to the Gentiles the knowledge of the one true God. What was a mystery was that God would save Gentiles apart from Israel and apart from Judaism. From the time of Abraham until the first century, if you wanted to know God and have a relationship with him, you had to either be a Jew or convert to Judaism. Paul was going around preaching Jesus Christ to Gentiles directly with no requirement that they first convert and become Jews. What a rich and glorious truth this is. You come to God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ apart from any works of righteousness and apart from any and all religion, rites, rules, and rituals. And when you come to Christ, you have Christ in you. You have the presence of Jesus via the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. Now, this is part of the mystery, too, because let me ask you a question. We just finished uh, a while ago teaching through the book of Exodus with a strong emphasis on the tabernacle. Where did God dwell in the Old Testament? Well, in Exodus, we saw that he dwelt in the Holy of Holies above the mercy seat, which sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, in that tabernacle. He made his presence known there. Today, where does God dwell? He dwells in the bodies of believers and in the gathered body of believers. Paul says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And so this is something really, really different from the Old Testament, really, really different from the Mosaic law where God desired to live in the tabernacle. He says, no, you are my tabernacle. 
And so Paul is saying this is a mystery not revealed before, that God is calling out a people that we call the church, the called out ones, and that he lives in them and among them. Then there's more to it. He says you have the hope of glory. The blessed hope of the church is the return of Jesus to resurrect the dead and rapture the living to take us home to heaven to the place he's uh, been preparing for us. All of this, what we call the church and the church age, where Jew and Gentile alike are born again by grace through faith in Jesus, that's the mystery revealed to each and every saint. That's the dispensation that we are in. Now, verse 28, him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. One commentator said the word preach refers to lips and lives. So don't just think it's giving a message about Jesus. It's talking about the Lord, but also living for Him. All of us have lives and lips that could be dedicated to serving the Lord at all times. Uh, whether you're going to work tomorrow or today or to school or wherever you're going, shoot up a quick prayer and say, Lord, use me. Help me to see some way to interject the name of Jesus or something about God into this conversation. Let me just throw out some trial balloons and see if anybody bites and, and see who I can talk to about the Lord. Uh, make, make, have fun with it. You don't need to be in all trepidation and worried and nervous that you have to, you know, nobody's going to ask you to do a, an exor, a, a, you know, a, a dissertation on the book of Colossians. Uh, whatever you know is, is enough to share with others. And so just be open to that. Let your lips and your lives preach. Notice Paul said, him we preach. We preach a person. To put it negatively, we do not preach a program or a system. Even if we are systematic in our understanding of Bible doctrine and how things in the Bible fit together, it is to be subordinate to the person and work of Jesus. It's an important thing to say because we are given to want to reduce things to something we can easily understand. So I've got, I don't know, I'm going to guess a dozen books on systematic theology, all different systematic theologies, and that's just scratching the surface. Uh, and they're all ways of taking everything the Bible says and understanding how it all works together. And every one of them fails at some point. Every one of them has difficulties that they can't honestly answer. And so what they do is they answer it within their theology. And in doing so, they sometimes reduce God to something everyone can understand and that makes perfect sense. Now, I'm not saying God isn't reasonable or that he shouldn't make sense, but you're never going to fully know God and all of his ways and his mysteries. And so there's no one perfect systematic theology. There's one out there right now where a lot of people convert to it and then they say, now I understand everything. I see how everything fits together. And that just tells me that you don't see anything and you don't know how anything fits together because all theologies are flawed because they're man's attempt to understand God. And so we preach a person, Jesus Christ, not a system. Uh, for example, if you're talking to somebody and they say, what must I do to be saved? You don't say, well, start coming to church, uh, wear better clothes, clean up your life, do all these things. No, you say, just believe in Jesus Christ, then come as you are and let the Lord change your life. And so we preach a person, uh, not a program. We're also to be warning every man. This involves, first of all, evangelism. Start thinking about evangelism as just warning people of the danger ahead. There's 
a hell ahead for those who don't know Jesus Christ. And just like you would warn somebody of any other impending danger, that's all evangelism really is in one sense, is caring enough for people that they know that they're going to die and go to hell if they don't have Jesus. Now, believers, too, need to be warned from time to time to continue in the faith and to live set-apart holy lives on the earth. We're prone to wander, are we not? We sing that in one of the hymns. And so we come to church and we let the Spirit uh, encourage us and exhort us and reignite our passion for the Lord. He says, teaching every man in all wisdom. The Amplified Bible translates wisdom as, you know, in years past, have you ever read the Amplified Bible? Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's, it expands on different verses. Used to be funny. I've tried this three times in 33 years. That's why I'm going to retire this right now. I'm never going to do it again. But used to be you'd say the Bible translates wisdom as, and then you'd say, then you'd start talking really loud. You know, get it? The Amplified Bible. But every time I do that, people think, what's wrong with Pastor Gene? Why is he talking so loud? So I'm not going to do that. I did get a chuckle out of it, so that, that's done. That joke is retired now. But what it says is that this word means insight into the ways of God. I like that. Nothing wrong with facts, figures, details, what's going on in Colossae. There were a lot of earthquakes there, this and this and that. But we're trying to figure out the ways of God. There's a verse in the Old Testament regarding Moses and the children of Israel. It says, the children of Israel knew the works of God and Moses knew the ways of God. And so Israel, the children of Israel could see what God had done, parting the Red Sea, bringing the plagues, all of these other things. But Moses knew why God was doing those things. He knew the ways of God. He knew the heart of God. He knew the nature of God. We want to be a people who know the ways of God, not just uh, the works of God, because his ways uh, are much more encouraging. His works don't always make sense, let me put it that way. The things that happen in our lives just don't always make sense, and they never will until we get to heaven. But if I know the ways of God, that his purpose for me is love and mercy and grace to minister his heart, then I, uh, I know something more. I know something precious. Paul's goal was to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. On earth, you are daily, as you cooperate with God, being perfected. In heaven, when you stand before the Lord, you will be perfect. I can't imagine what that would be like. Uh, none of us really can. In perfect health, with perfect mind, with no sin nature, um, it's going to be glorious. Now, we're reading Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, but it's our letter too. It's the church at Hanford. Paul was writing to us. He was suffering imprisonment and uh, every, other believe, uh, every other affliction for you and I, every bit as he was for the Colossians. Leads me to say that someone suffered for you to bring you the gospel. In fact, a lot of people did. For you, God raised up and gifted saints throughout history, including guys like Paul. For you, God raised up family members, friends, and co-workers, fellow students who were willing to suffer at some level to let you know that they were believers in Jesus Christ. And so... A lot of people in your background that brought the gospel to you. You know, right now, everybody's fascinated with their ancestry. That's fine. I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong with that. Except a lot of people are finding things out about their ancestry that they wish they didn't know. So let me just warn you right now, not everybody is related to George Washington. You know, people go around and say, yeah, I drew my family tree. I'm related to George Washington. 
It's not the president. It's some other George Washington who was a criminal. But anyway, no, and there are people, there's stories, you can Google it, people who are finding things out that they wish they didn't know about their family tree. So at your own risk. Spiritually speaking, you were born again as a result of spiritual ancestors sharing the gospel with others. What a fascinating tree that would be. Now, there's no way to really trace it. Uh, you could only go back so far, and then you'd have hundreds and even thousands of people. But just think about it, even starting with the Apostle Paul writing these letters and establishing these churches, and think about the gospel going out from the first century until the point it reached you and your heart was open to Jesus Christ. How many multiplied thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions of people were involved to get the gospel to you? It's an amazing thing. And Paul is saying that all of them will have a hand in presenting you to Jesus Christ. They are your presenters in the future glorious day when you appear before the Lord. Now, you also, therefore, are going to be presenting those that you serve. Have you ever read all the credits at the end of a feature film? I'm going to say no. Maybe you have that as a hobby. If you do, I'll talk to you later, but... It's incredible how many people are recognized. The credits for the extended version of The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, are fully 27 minutes long. They just keep going and going and going. I used to chuckle at some of the services listed in the closing credits, things that seem so insignificant, caterers, bookkeepers, assistants to the assistants. And then one day it struck me that Every one of those names was there because they contributed, however slightly, to the overall project. I mean, you, you always know when the show is going to start because they put up the name of the director. Have you noticed that? Do you understand that? When the director comes up, there are no more opening credits because that guy is numero uno. And then at the end, they have these other credits. And so uh, the director. But the director needs to eat. And so Joe's Catering Company gets a, a, a nod at the end. And the director needs to get paid. And so there's a bookkeeper. And the director needs all of these other things in order to do his thing. And so everyone has some significant part to play. You and I are God's closing credits in the lives of others that we share the gospel with. In some lives, you're like a director or a producer. In others, you're like an assistant to an assistant or maybe like a janitor. But your contribution, however slight, is still significant. And so verse 29 to this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. The work of a presenter requires labor and striving. These are athletic terms. I can't tell if Paul was a frustrated athlete or if he just likes sports, but this guy is always all about athletic metaphors. Labor is a term that describes the training of the athlete behind the scenes and before the contest. For those of you my age, think Rocky. For those of you more modern, think Creed or any extreme training sequence. Striving is the word we get agonizing from. It refers to the intensity of the athletic contest itself, the effort that you put into it when you're on the field. Now, these words indicate a joyful, voluntary serving, but one that is nevertheless filled with physical and mental weariness, toil, and exhaustion. It's become fashionable, Christian chic, to talk about things like burnout and our need for sabbaticals in serving the Lord. When I went to college, I did go to college. I don't like to admit it, but I did. But uh, when I went to college, 
my professors would take sabbaticals. And what that was is they take three months or six months off to go study in Europe or someplace or to write the, their novel or to write a paper or to do a thesis or something like that. This has crept into some churches as a sabbatical, which is essentially a three-month, all-expenses-paid vacation where you do nothing but recharge your batteries. And so we, we don't do that here, uh, and we're never going to do that. Uh, and so, it, you know, it, these things, they sound... They sound so plausible. You need to get away and recharge. Well, I want you for a moment to imagine yourself telling the Apostle Paul, you're feeling a little burnt out in your ministry. Remember, you'd be looking at a man who had surrendered everything to serve the Lord, whose body had hundreds of lashes, who had been in many imprisonments and multiple shipwrecks, a man who had deep mental exhaustions thinking about the welfare of the church, someone who wished he could be cursed to hell if it would mean the salvation of his people, the Jews. Now go ahead and tell him how tired you are. I envision Paul, whenever, if somebody comes up to him and starts complaining about these things, I envision it like in those movies where the, the hero takes off his shirt and then you see all the scars. You know, he's been whipped and shot and beaten and stuff. You think, wow, what he did for his country or for whatever it was. And so I think all, I, I'm sure Paul wouldn't do this, but all he'd have to do is take off his tunic and, and if you didn't shut up, you're an idiot. The book of Hebrews, those poor people, they had lost their jobs, they had lost their homes, they had lost their possessions. And even at that, the writer says, guys, come on, you're not bleeding yet. Hang in there. Don't go back to the temple. It would be wrong. And so we have to have more of a biblical idea about what it means to serve the Lord. And sometimes it means you're going to be really, really tired. You're going to be mentally exhausted. And um, I'm not saying those are good things, that they should be desired, but it's not an unusual thing. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul told them that Epaphroditus was, and I quote, sick almost unto death, but he nevertheless went on serving. Physical and mental weariness, toil and exhaustion, even illness are to be expected at times if you're serving the Lord. They're not uh, something that you need to worry about. Now, Paul is quick to add that you are not left to your own strength to accomplish any of this. His working, Paul said, works in me mightily. You surrender and suffer, God supplies the power. You are strong in him as you are weak in yourself. The, the gospel is filled with opposites, and this is one that we have a hard time with. In your weakness, God is made strong. Because in every other area of our life, we're taught and told that our strength is necessary. Our mental strength, our physical strength, our endurance, whatever it is, we need to just keep... And then the gospel comes along and says, no, you can be super weak in all of those areas, but my strength will come through you. And, and we need to depend more on the Lord to be the strength than we do ourselves. Griffith Thomas wrote, sacrificial disciples are needed to proclaim the sacrificial work of our Lord. Many saints suffered for you and for me so we would hear the gospel and be saved. Can we do any less, especially as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit as we await the blessed hope of the appearing of Jesus at any moment? Verse 1 of chapter 2, for I want you to know... What a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as I have not seen my face in the flesh. Conflict is not what you think. It's a Greek word, agon, A-G-O-N. 
The Greeks referred to the athletic arena as the agon. It was the place people assembled to watch the games, and so it came to refer to the contest itself. So Paul's saying he was engaged in a great conflict for believers in the sense that he was in the arena of Christian life, exercising all of his spiritual, mental, and physical energy to serve others. Like a great athlete in the arena, Paul brought his A game, A standing for apostle. I thought that was clever, but you don't, so let's move on. Laodicea was about 11 miles from Colossae. It seems this letter was for them too. At this point, that church was doing well and standing firm. But of course, they are famous uh, in the book of the Revelation some years later for Jesus saying, you know what? You guys make me sick. Can you imagine that? What he actually says is that because they're lukewarm, he's going to vomit them out of his mouth. But essentially, Jesus comes to those people, the Laodiceans, and say, you make me sick in your commitment to Christianity. I mean, our point here is that it, it, it doesn't take long for the perils of this world to start to undercut our Christian life. The world's a dangerous place for believers. Our pilgrimage homeward to heaven is fraught with peril. We have, however, both guidance and companionship along the way in the form of God's Word, God's indwelling Spirit, and God's earthly people. I don't want to scare you, uh, but I do want to warn you, you need to continue in the disciplines of the Christian life. Uh, Just like anything else, there's too much peril out there for you to to just slack off. Uh, Keep praying, keep reading God's Word, keep coming to church. I can say this to you because you're all here. You should be coming to church. We don't do anything about attendance. We don't call you. We don't try and find out where you are. We pray for you. We wonder where you are. But, you know, we don't base anything on attendance here. If you come three weeks in a row, you're an elder. But I'm just kidding. The average, by the way, I think uh, I was quoted this the other day. I didn't get a chance to refer to it, but the source was valid. The average Christian in America attends church once every six weeks. Now, I'm not saying that so that you feel better about yourself or worse about yourself. That's just the way it is. The New Testament doesn't know anything about Christians who aren't involved in a local fellowship. And so if you know somebody who doesn't think they need to be involved in the church for whatever reason, they're just wrong. And maybe they don't think they need ministering to because they're online and they're listening to Bible studies and all that. Who are they serving and how are they doing it? With what oversight? to make sure that they're doing it as unto the Lord. And so go to church, uh, pray, read the word, uh, volunteer, do all of those things, and keep doing them, especially as you see the day approaching. And let's hasten the coming of the Lord. Verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches and the fullness of assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. All of these verses are just a mouthful. Encouraged is from the word that means to come alongside. can also be roughly translated with heart. The idea is to always come alongside believers with a desire to strengthen their heart for the Lord. Remember, we preach a person, not a program. Paul said being knit together in love, when you knit something, you pull together the separate strands and unite them into something that has both beauty and purpose. Believers are to promote unity as something beautiful and with great purpose. And we do it because of the love that God has shown us and that we can therefore show towards each other. Attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding. Paul exerted all of his energies toward getting believers to understand the implications of the gospel. The more they understood, the greater their assurance. Assurance of what? Assurance of their salvation, of their ongoing sanctification, 
of their ultimate glorification in heaven. Those assurances are riches indeed. Past couple of weeks, I've done, it seems like it wasn't quite this bad, but it seems like I officiated at a funeral almost every day. And they were all difficult funerals in one sense, but they were all wonderful funerals in another sense, and that is each individual was absent from their body and now present with the Lord. And it is with absolute 200% confidence as a minister of the gospel that I can look at a person right in the face and say, this person is in heaven with Jesus Christ. Are you? There's no assurance like that. It's the greatest sense in the world. When you have to do a funeral for a person who's questionable, that's rough. You still preach the gospel, uh, but you have to be very careful. And so Paul says, I want you to have full assurance. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. You have no assurance. In fact, well, I, in, let me take that back. I can assure you that if you die today, you're going to be absent from the body and in Hades awaiting the final judgment. And so you need to get saved. I mean, that's the bottom line. Christianity is a powerful thing. I, I did uh, one funeral I did last week. I pointed out that Jesus writes your name in the book of life. No one else can write your name in the Lamb's book of life, which is the only book that matters in the end. Buddha can't do it. Muhammad can't do it. Joseph Smith can't do it. No philosopher, no other supernatural being can write your name in the book of life. Only Jesus Christ because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so when Paul says assurance... He's talking about 200% assurance that you are on your way to heaven. Make sure you have that. To the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and Christ, as we saw the mystery being revealed was the church of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There are hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge to be discovered, but they're not discovered by adopting worldly or cultic practices. They're discovered daily as you spend time with the Lord. And they can be discovered by all believers, not just a privileged few. You know, you don't have to be very smart to be a Christian. On the other hand, you can be a genius and be a Christian. And both of you can find the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Here's one thing I suggest that you do. I haven't spoken about this for a while to my shame. When you read your Bible, whatever other reading you're doing, keep doing that, that's fine. But also take a section of Scripture... Usually your Bible is broken up now into paragraphs with headings. Take a section of Scripture and read that and reread it and reread it and reread it and keep on reading it for a week over and over again. And I, I believe that God will begin to show you things that you didn't see on your first and second and third and 50th reading. Words that are repeated, ideas will jump out at you. You are mining for treasure in the wisdom of God's Word. And so give it a try and you'll find out what every Bible teacher knows, that there's the secret is to just spend time with Jesus Christ. It, it, you don't need to be smart. I proved that. I'm just, uh, I'm a below average Joe with very little common sense. Uh, and uh, my wife could tell you all this if she were here. Uh, but God is able to use me, I hope, to minister the gospel. At least you're here. You haven't left yet. But anyway, verse 4. Now I say this lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Caution is always required because there are those wanting to deceive you. Persuasive words means fast talk. That's like a, a bad salesman. Don't automatically buy into what you hear. You must take what you hear back to God's word and measure it. Nothing wrong with a healthy skepticism. In fact, I would encourage you to be more skeptical of what you hear. 
Uh, some of us are more prone to skepticism uh, than others, but we all need to be uh, those who test what we hear against God's word. And so be uh, in that frame of mind. Verse 5, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. In this verse, I was particularly touched by the phrase, with you in spirit. You know, we like to tell folks we are praying for them. That's great. I do it too. And it's especially great if we really are praying for them and not just saying it as a Christian cliche. Now, I'm not suggesting any of you would ever do that. But I think I might have done that once or twice in my life, or maybe more. Oh, I'm praying for you. And then, quite honestly, I don't follow through always. Life gets busy or whatever. I don't write it down or whatever. I think it'd be better to tell people, I am with you in spirit. I'm with you in spirit. There's something intimate about that. There's something powerful about that. There's something uniting and encouraging about that. Hey, Gene is with me in spirit, or this person is with Gene in spirit. It's, I'm not trying to get mystical about it, uh, but it's like instead of what I'm going to do for you, it's this is who I am with you. We stand together in this thing. And what happens to you affects me, and what happens to me affects you. And so I want you to know that I understand that, and I'm with you in spirit. The church at Colossae was in good order with steadfast faith in Christ, and so Paul could rejoice. And so I, I like that. I think our church is in good order steadfast in the faith, and we all should rejoice that the Lord's doing a good work. It's an old film. It wasn't that popular, but you might be familiar with Mr. Holland's Opus. How many of you remember Mr. Holland's Opus? A few of you. Richard Dreyfuss was nominated for an Academy Award for his portrayal of Mr. Holland. He's a composer. He takes on a teaching position at a high school, thinking it will give him more time to compose his life's work, because everybody who teaches high school has tons of time on their hands. Quite the opposite happens as he gets involved helping his students. His life becomes full of interruptions. And it seemingly passes him by. But then at his retirement, in a moving end scene, hundreds of people he has encouraged over the years stand up and give him credit for what he's done for them. And this is what the movie builds to. They are his opus, not his composition, but his true opus as he has poured himself into the lives of these other people. And so, what are you wanting to produce through your efforts in life? Somewhere on top of that list ought to be disciples that you will have a hand in presenting to God. Many will present you. How many will you be able to present? Let's pray.